Well, Merry Christmas. How about that? Thank you to uh, Todd and the worship team. I had uh, <laughs> sent them in a different direction. I was going to uh, preach on Hark the Herald Angels Sing, sings, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, um, because I thought it's profound and Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Talk about the hypostatic union. I thought, you know, that's the last thing people want. A diagram of the hypostatic union on Christmas Eve, right? So, we're going to go with Matthew, uh, Matthew's version of uh, the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 2. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm not going to even read through it first. Um, I'm going to take it verse by verse, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, learn as we go, okay? So let me pray one more time. Lord, as, um, as we open your word tonight, I pray that uh, you would focus our attention in on the incredible reality that you became human. You were born like any other man, and not in a luxurious castle, but into poverty. And you came to be God with us. So Lord, I pray that we'd be able to set aside for a few moments uh, the busyness, the baking, the presents, the family gatherings, and focus in on the real uh, meaning of Christmas. So Holy Spirit, come and open our eyes and our hearts to who you are. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, let me begin by having us look at the first two verses in Matthew uh, chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, the king, we'll come back to that guy, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So who are these wise men from the east? Well, the Greek word is magi. Uh, some translations translate it wise men. Um, some Christmas cards have kings riding on camels. Uh, in reality, in all probability, the wise men date back to the book of Daniel, where there were wise men. And Daniel actually becomes the chief wise men uh, over the wise men. Right? They were practicers of astrology, so they, they gazed at the stars. Um, dream interpretation, which is why Daniel gets promoted. He, he um, uh, interprets the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. They studied ancient writings, and they were looked at as the wisest advisors to the king. So uh, they, they studied a mixture of science, literature, and superstition. Now, at this time, the wise men, in all probability, and I'm going to call them the seekers, uh, came from Persia, modern-day Iraq, 
and they would not have cut straight across the desert. They would have gone the northern route. So it's about a thousand mile journey. Now we're not told they were on camels, but what else are you going to take across uh, that distance? So about a thousand miles from Persia. Now, how did they know that this star had anything to do with the king being born in Israel? Well, we don't know for sure, but it's possible that Daniel taught them the Hebrew Scriptures 500 years earlier. And there is a rather obscure prophecy that comes from the mouth, not of a Hebrew prophet, but from Balaam, a pagan prophet. Um, the people of Moab uh, wanted Balaam to curse Israel in the book of Numbers. And he opens his mouth to curse Israel, and what comes out is a blessing. And there's a prophecy in Numbers 24, 17. It says, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So there you have a star, and there you have a, a royal, uh, a king's ruling staff connected together in one verse. Now, that still leaves a lot of mystery. The Jews actually thought this was a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Okay? But how did they know what star to look for? There's still a lot of mystery that we don't understand. But here's what I want you to get. These men were so consumed with a hunger for truth that they were willing to travel a thousand miles to seek the Savior based on the barest hint of truth. One obscure verse from Numbers. Here's a question. How about you? Are you a seeker after truth? Are you willing to travel over land and sea, travel out even to an abandoned cafeteria in a cornfield to learn about truth? Here's what uh, I'm reading through the book of Proverbs. Here's what the book of Proverbs says. If you seek it, speaking of wisdom and knowledge, like silver and search for it uh, as, uh, as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. God will reveal himself to you. He will reveal truth. But you can't just float through life taking in whatever the media feeds you, whatever popular opinion is. You need to seek after truth and reject error. And I would say a great place to start, really the only place to start, is in God's Word and find a Bible-teaching church that teaches you the truth of God's Word. Seek after Him with all your heart. All right? So here we have these seekers. And let me keep reading, and we'll introduce you now to the savage. When Herod the king heard this, Heard, heard what? 
that they were seeking after this new Jewish king. He was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Now, why would all of Jerusalem be troubled? Because King Herod is troubled. Well, Herod was, uh, if you ever do a tour of Israel, a brilliant psychopath. He built up Israel. He built Caesarea on the sea with the the theater that's still there today and the Hippodrome, the horse racing uh, theater. And he rebuilt the temple uh, in Jerusalem. And he he built Masada and he had, what was it, 11 palaces all over. And he built up uh, Israel to be the treasure of the world. But he was a bit crazy, too. Uh, He didn't like what was going on in the Sanhedrin, 70 rulers of Israel. So he killed 46 of them. Then he got a majority. Maybe they were trying to impeach him or something. But uh, he just killed half of them. Herod was obsessed with one of his wives. He had ten wives. Miramane. She was beautiful. But there was a little problem. She, as a young girl, said, I won't marry you unless you make my brother, Aristobulus, the high priest. So he said, I want to marry you. He made the brother the high, high priest. And then Herod invited this young brother to go swimming in his very shallow pool in uh, Jericho. And he drowned in a, like a foot of water. Well, Mary, uh, Mary Mum, uh, what's her name? Mary Maine. <laughs> Mary Maine uh, said, wait a minute, he couldn't drown in a foot deep pool of water. You killed my brother. So she didn't trust him. And then he didn't trust her, but he was obsessed with her beauty. So he, he, he was a tormented man. And then one day he just sentences her to death, kills her, her two sons. She already killed, he already killed her brother, her grandfather and her mother. Uh, it's a painting of, of Herod sentencing his wife to die. Somebody else painted her taking her two sons to her death. Here's another thing he had planned. Nobody liked him. And um, this is a little history article. When Herod became sick and near death, he knew that no one would mourn his passing. Therefore, he came up with a diabolical plan. According to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, Herod ordered that the most illustrious men of the whole Jewish nation should be taken out of every village and imprisoned in the Hippodrome. Then at the moment of his death, Herod said, all of these men should be killed. That way, he would know that people would be crying on the day of his death, even if the tears weren't for him. Fortunately, when Herod died in the spring of 4 BC, no one carried out this barbaric order, and the men lived. But, hey, nobody's going to mourn for me, so let's kill all the important men in Israel. They'll be crying uh, at my funeral. Now, he hears that the new king of the Jews has been born. He becomes paranoid. 
And he sends the wise men. They are supposed to give a report back, but they don't. But his intention was not to worship the newborn king of the Jews, but to kill him, to get rid of him. Now, here's the application. Every one of us is in the place of Herod. And we have to figure out what to do with the, the king. Right? I, I became a believer through this organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. And now it's called Crew. But they have this little booklet, Four Spiritual Laws, and they have this illustration. And I, I still use this. I draw this for people on napkins and on whiteboards when I'm talking to them about the Lord. And I say, hey, here's a picture of life. And here's the throne of your life, and there you are, S. You're the, you're, you're the self on the throne. Jesus is outside of your life. Right? Now here's the reality. He's your creator. And your savior. He died for you. And to place your faith in him means you stop trusting in yourself. You trust in what Jesus did for uh, for you on the cross, but he's also your Lord. And what that means is to be, become a follower of Jesus, you put yourself at the foot of the throne and you put him on the throne of your life. And I show that to people and I say, which one describes your life? And most people who are honest will say this one. And then the next question is, do you want this to be your life? Some people say, absolutely. I'm tired of, of being the God of my own life. And I repent of my sin. And I, I want Jesus to forgive me. And I want him to be my Lord. Other people say, no, I'm not so sure I want that. I remember when um, our oldest, Caleb, was like three years old. We had Bible time, and he was sitting on my lap, and we were looking through this little children's Bible, and I explained the gospel to him, and I said, would you like to pray to, to uh, ask Jesus to be your Savior? And um, now realize he becomes your boss. You get a boss, and... I said, um, you ready to pray? And he goes, no. I said, why not? I'm not so sure I want a boss. <laughs> so Herod didn't want a boss. He was the boss, and he wanted to kill Jesus. How about you? Do you want this to be the picture of your life or are you fine right here? You know, really, the essence of sin, when, uh, when Christians talk about sin, people think we're, we're saying, well, you're a sinner if you do the following list of things. Those things are just the outcropping of this life. The ultimate sin is saying, I know you created me, I know you died for me, but I'm going to run my life. I may believe you exist, but I'm not handing over the throne to you. Right? So the, 
the lesson we learn from the, the wise men is they were willing to seek over, over land and sea to find truth. Are you? The lesson we learn from Herod is he didn't want another king threatening him. How about you, honestly? Which one describes your life? Right. Now, let me keep going. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they come into Jerusalem. Um, where, where from, from, you, from your guys' knowledge, your guys' study, you're the Jews, you've got the, the scrolls, and wh- where is he supposed to be born? They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and now they're going to quote, and they're going to really kind of paraphrase uh, Micah 5.2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the scholars say, hey, we've studied all the prophets, and our literature says that Bethlehem is where the Messiah must be born. Bethlehem is five miles south of Jerusalem. Um, now what's interesting is this prophecy that they quoted was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. So I, I thought about um, just how amazing that is. And I thought this might be a good night to, to try a trick, uh, to, to, to do a prophecy, uh, prophecy trick here. And I need somebody's mind to read um, Eleanor. Are, are you thinking clearly tonight? All right, come on up here. Now, this is not set up, right? No. Absolutely nothing. Okay. You stand right there. Okay. Now, um, I actually have... Don't look. All right. She's going she's gonna to write something on this piece of paper. I'm going to have you um, write down the name of an animal. Not like... Scooby the dog, but like an animal. Okay. okay. Do you get the idea? Yeah. Okay. Now, before you do it, before you do it, I, let me go over here, and I, don't be looking, Max, all right, I am going to make a prophecy. Who says we don't have prophecy here at Valley Brook? Right? Don't drop the lid. Does it work? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, all right. Did, you didn't go yet, did you? No. Okay. So here's my, pr- my prediction, my prophecy. I'm going to just set it right here. And, okay, go ahead and write down the name of an animal. Okay, mine's already done. Let me let me see what you wrote here. Oh, very good. She she wrote a frog. Right? Now hold on to that. Would y'all think it was just crazy if I drew a picture of a frog? Isn't that good? That's good. 
Good. Thank you, Eleanor. Now. Don't get too excited. <laughs> She's only in high school, right? Yeah. Guitar pick. <laughs> From Eddie Van Halen. No. Um, so, so now, here, I'll give you a little clue. You want to know how that was done? I won't tell you if you don't want to know. Do you want to know how that was done? Oh, it's good to have Sarah, because if it's good enough, she'll cry. She'll cry. <laughs> um, so here's a clue. I won't tell you how it's done. But um, my prophecy was made while I was still alive. And I could somehow manipulate things to get the answer that I wanted. All right? So, and some people think, well, the Bible doesn't have prophecy, it's trickery. But this prophecy about Bethlehem being where the Messiah would be born, there's no way it could be a trick. Because it was written by a prophet 700 years before the birth of Christ. And when it's time for him to be born, he's living up here in Nazareth. And Bethlehem's down here, and uh, somehow they have to get from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. So uh, the king, or the, actually it's Caesar, calls for a worldwide census, go back to your hometown, and they have to travel all the way down to Bethlehem to make it all fit together. So I'm reading a new book now. It's called The Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. And it's 85... Um, separate chapters on different scripture showing how all these Old Testament chapters point to Jesus as the Messiah. And they're not all prophecy fulfillment, prediction fulfillment. Some of them are more like themes that find their culmination in Jesus. There's a good, good article in here by this guy named Dr. James Spencer. You ought to read it. It's, it's good stuff here, right? But um, the Old Testament is full of prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. Right? Now, that leads me to the slothful. Okay? Who are the slothful? The scholars who take the time to look at, at the prophet Micah and say, yeah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, it's five miles south of here, they roll up the scrolls, and they don't go. You know, a huge theme in the Gospels is that those closest to the truth, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the scribes, the experts in the law, were the most blind to God. They were caught up in the details and the minutiae of religion but they missed God. They missed the big picture. Now, this word sloth is interesting. If you were to ask most people what does sloth mean, Josh, what does sloth mean? It's an animal hanging from a tree. No. Um, most people would say sloth means lazy. And actually, it's one of the seven deadly sins from the Middle Ages. And sloth 
in its original context didn't mean um, laziness. In fact, it could be a life very busy, full of activity, even religious busyness. But it was all useless. I think we live in a pretty slothful time where there's lots of activity, lots of things to do. But if it doesn't end up in seeking after God and knowing your Creator, it's a waste. It could even be religious activity. But it could be slothful. So the people in Jerusalem say, "Eh, why take the time to go to Bethlehem? We're busy with our religion. Meanwhile, the wise men are willing to travel a thousand miles following this star to seek after the truth. So, we go on. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may, uh, that I too may come and worship him. And by worship him, I mean kill him. Right? He didn't want to worship him. He just wanted to use them to lead him to the whereabouts of this threatening king and kill him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, verse 9 is really really important uh, to me because the star came to rest over the place where the child was. It rested over the place. Um, The first argument my wife and I ever had in marriage was on Christmas Eve over the star of Bethlehem. She said, here's her thinking, it says star, it was a star. I said it couldn't be a star. It it had to be in the atmosphere, because it, it stopped over Bethlehem. Stars are like a billion light years away. They don't rest over a place. She said, it says star? It's a star. I said, but how could it? It says star. I said, but it's got to be in the, the and, and we had this, like, we got mad at each other and pouted. And Remember that? Right. So I... So I was reading my ESV study Bible and I found this note that says, the movement of the star, Matthew 2.9, suggests that it's not a natural phenomenon, a comet, a supernova, or a conjunction of planets, but was supernatural. Perhaps a guiding angel that appeared as a star or perhaps some specially created heavenly phenomenon that had the brightness of the star because, you know, they know that it couldn't have been out the atmosphere it had to land over. Just thought I'd bring that up. That's for you, dear. <laughs> they could be wrong. <laughs> All right. So they follow the star and going into the house. Now, um, another, another Christmas card correction. 
uh, every Christmas card has the shepherds and the wise men and the sheep and camels and the little drummer boy all there together on the night he was born. He's living in a house by the time they show up. Right? Could have been two years later. How do, how, do we, how do we come to that conclusion? Herod has all the boys two and under killed. So he may have been living in a home for two years before the wise men show up. But going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. I think Matthew wants us to know that this child is God. A theme throughout, throughout the whole Bible is God is the only one deserving of worship. Don't worship idols. Don't worship false gods. And when false worship happens, it's corrected. It is pointed out as wrong. Here, they worship the child. No correction. Um, this is a picture of deity. They understand that he is God. And then, and we'll end with this. They have gifts. They open their treasures. And who can name the three gifts? You got them? Gold. What's the second one? Frankincense and myrrh. Yeah. So if you've, you came to the, uh, the performances that the worship team did, um, you know, we talked about the three gifts. Now, some people say that these three gifts don't have any symbolic significance. In fact, after we did the presentation, I turned on open line, and somebody asked about these three gifts. And Michael Delnick said, ah, they don't have any significance. They were just gifts. Don't read anything into it. But he could be wrong, right? Right? Yeah. Um, so, I'm going to suggest, whether this is right or wrong, the rest of Scripture teaches this, right? That gold is a gift fit for a king, foreshadowing the idea that this little baby really is not just the king of Israel, but the king of kings and lord of lords. Right? The second gift was frankincense, which you've always wondered what it smells like, don't you? And here we have frankincense. You want to smell it? Pass it around. You can smell that. You never got to smell it because you were playing drums, right? right? <laughs> smells like eucalyptus with a hint of peppermint. I'd like to thank Essential Oils for <laughs> providing the frankincense. Okay. Now, frankincense was a fragrance that was intermingled into the sacrifices that were offered in the temple. Okay. Pointing to the fact that Jesus is God. Right? And then the third thing was myrrh. Strange gift for a baby. But myrrh was a spice used in burial. Right? When his body was wrapped up by Joseph of Arimathea, myrrh 
was used, foreshadowing the coming death of Jesus, which is the real reason he came, to die, to pay for our sin. So let me close with this little poem dealing with the gifts. Wise men wandering, seeking the king, worship and gifts they joyfully bring, finding the Christ child displaying their loyalty, the gift of gold announces his royalty. The aroma of frankincense filling the skies, announcing God with us before their eyes. Myrrh, a gift foretelling his death. This mystery will bring us eternal breath. The giving of frankincense, myrrh and gold, through these gifts, the story is told. Would you pray? Worship team, come on up. Lord, when you left your glory and became a baby, even in infancy, your life was in danger. Born into poverty, rejected by your own people, pursued by Herod and his family. Thank you for leaving your glory and becoming God with us. Thank you for your birth, your ministry, your death, your resurrection, and the fact that you are now seated at the right hand of glory. So we worship you tonight, Lord, our King of kings and Lord of lords.